here we go with this one. Hi guys, how are you today? My name is Bailey Sarian and today is Monday, which means it's another episode of Murder, Mystery, and Makeup Monday. Oh my God, what the? I hate this. It's the ghosts. I hate you. Something doesn't want me to do this. Anyways, um, if you're new here every Monday, I sit down, I do my makeup and I talk about a true crime case that has been heavy on my noggin and I just get ready, I do my makeup. It just keeps me busy, you know? If you're interested in true crime and you like makeup, I would suggest you subscribe. Anyways, but I did get this recommendation from my comment section and it, I keep seeing this name pop up over and over and over again. Bailey, please do the toy box killer, Bailey. Do the toy box killer. Bailey, toy box killer. I kept saying it over and over again. And I don't, I must've been living under a rock. I had never heard of this person before. And my first thought was, oh, it's probably like a child's killer or something. And honestly, like I would just, child killers are just, you know, it's all bad. All killers are bad, but I just wasn't in, I don't want to talk about child killer. Anyways, after I did some Googling, I realized it's not a child killer, but he's, <laughs> that's how I feel about today's story, case, whatever. It makes, <laughs> awesome. I have to add a very, very heavy disclaimer to today's story slash case. Warning, the following presentation is intended for mature audiences. It contains graphic descriptions of crime scenes, and I'm talking very graphic. Adult dialogue and strong language. Viewer discretion is advised. It's very heavy, okay? There's animal cruelty, there's rape, there's drug abuse. It's very graphic, and if you are sensitive at all to any of that, I would say please, please, please just skip this one. There's no way to get around how graphic this is, and I fully blame you guys. Okay, this is your fault. You recommended this case. I had never heard of this, and I was living my life happily until I heard about this guy. Okay, let's get into the toy box killer. So the toy box killer, his real name is David Parker. Ray. He was born on November 6, 1939, and he lived in New Mexico. A little bit about like his upbringing. His father uh, was an abusive drunk who treated his wife, David, and David's sister, Peggy, very poorly. Very abusive, controlling, bad, awful, awful, awful. <laughs> The couple divorced when David was 10 and the three moved to live with grandfather. He had really strict rules and he expected everyone under the roof to follow them. Failing to follow his rules met with physical, very violent abuse. While his father did not live with them, he visited the family periodically. And when he would visit David, he would give him pornographic magazines. And a lot of them would be pornographic magazines that would show a lot of BDSM, just really intense. There is absolutely 100% nothing wrong with BDSM if you are into it. I am not shaming whatsoever. Um, you are allowed to be into whatever you want sexually. Well, I mean, except for like animals and shit like that, but you get what I'm saying. Like no judging here and we're not blaming BDSM on anything. So, okay, never mind, just shut up. So David's mother was reported to like not be around at all. So when they had divorced the parents, David's mother just kind of disappeared, okay? From what I read, she was an alcoholic and abused drugs and she just sadly chose that and she just disappeared. So really she had no contact with the children and the family 
at all. So David was also mentally and physically beaten pretty severely by bullies at school, all the way from grade school until he graduated high school. David was really awkward and shy and it made it made him a target for bullies. Getting abused at home and then getting abused at school, obviously it just, it did a lot of damage to him. Usually school is somewhere where you can at least escape your shitty home life. And for David, it was like he couldn't escape it anywhere. And I just have to say side note. A lot of the times when I mention these awful killers having a hard upbringing, I see a handful of comments from people suggesting that I'm siding with the bad guy or the killer, or I'm making it more about him or her being a victim. And I just have to say, shut up. Just so you know, I'm not making excuses for them. Personally, like when I read these stories about serial killers and stuff like that, I like to know the full story. I like to see the whole background, where they came from. Did they come from a good family? Did they come from a bad family? Am I saying that if you are abused or anything as a child, you're gonna grow up to be a serial killer? Absolutely 100% not. No, for me personally, I just like to get the full story and I know some of you guys do as well. So that's why I put it in. I am not trying to make this out to be about the serial killer being the victim. I'm just giving the full story. So during high school, David began to experiment with drugs and alcohol. During this time of abusing drugs and alcohol is when David began to form a fascination with pornography and then the BDSM. He had like a collection that he kept that his dad had given him over time. I, you know, this was the 50s and 60s. So it was, it's definitely, it was very different. <laughs> it was just different. I mean, come on, 50s and 60s was just, it seemed like the most judgmental time to be alive. So Peggy, David's sister, she found a bunch of his pornography, the pretty gnarly stuff. He had photos, he had drawings that David had made and he was 14 at this time. And again, this was in the 50s and 60s. So this was something just way uncommon. And when she found this, it alarmed her, okay? Like uh, alarmed her. She was probably like, what the fuck? I have to add some humor to this because this story is so heavy. And if I joke around a lot, look, I have to. It's the only way I can get through this one. <laughs> she never spoke about it until um, his trial decades later, which we'll get into. She never said anything. On the outside looking in, David appeared to be making the best of his pretty shitty upbringing. He had joined the army and he received an honorable discharge. And while he was in the army, he worked as a mechanic and throughout his adult life, he worked as one as well. He was pretty much a, me a mechanic since his teenage years, all the way up until his fifties. All of his coworkers and his friends, they would all say um, he was great great at his job. He was always teaching others how to make or fix anything. He was super friendly, he was funny. David, he would weld and he would make his own tools to help him be better at his job. And he was a crafty little man, just like a lot of these killers seem to be, huh? We gotta be keeping an eye out on these crafty ones. So then David, he had married his first wife. I couldn't exactly find an age at which this happened, but he married a lady. David had confided in her that as a teenager, he captured a woman and proceeded to tie her to a tree and from there tortured and finally killed her. So his first wife, she reportedly, she took it with a grain of salt. She thought he was just suffering some from some kind of mental illness and she really just didn't do anything about it. She would go on to say that he had increasingly disturbing behavior throughout their marriage and that is eventually what 
ended their marriage. No idea what this disturbing behavior was. The only thing I could find was that it was disturbing. So I'm not really sure, but the fact though that he confided in her about possibly killing somebody, to me, I feel like that would have been like, all right, I'm out you know, but I give up too easily, I don't know. So David was married four times and each of those times ended in divorce. Didn't really have the best luck in um, relationships. So he ended up having two daughters throughout the marriages. One of them, Glenda Jean Ray, and they called her Jessie. I won't name the other one because it kind of, first of all, I couldn't really even find her name. Second of all, it kind of seemed like she didn't really even want to be associated with the dude, so. Let's just leave her out of it, okay. Flash forward to his 50s. He's in his 50s now. Um, he lives in New Mexico. He lives in a small town. It's called Elephant Butte. It looks like Elephant Butt, but I think it's Butte because I doubt they would name it Elephant Butt. So adjacent to Elephant Butte is another small town and it was called, or it is called Truth or Consequences. Like this is the name of this city truth or consequences. I am not kidding you. I got so hung up on these names for like a solid two hours. I was researching who names a city truth or consequences. I still like can't get over it. Truth or consequences. It's called truth. Or, it's called truth. I live in truth or consequences. Anyways, it's called Truth or Consequences. In this small town, Elephant Butte, we have Truth or Consequences. They're right next to each other, right? And then there's a large reservoir and it, a man-made like lake was put in the area, which a lot of people thought was nice. A lot of people thought this was nice because it was just a big old lake in the middle of the desert and there isn't anything else around. So it made a great area for the retirement community who came there for the warmer weather. So it was a lot of retired folks out there. They could take their boat out onto the, the lake. They could fish. Sadly, this area, it, it brought in a lot of drifters. Okay, it's the middle of the desert, a lot of people coming and going. There was a lot of sex workers, a lot of drug addicts, sadly, I mean, and they would all be in this area. The homeless community and the drug addicts, they would all set up camp around the lake area and that's where they would all hang out. So around this time in like 1999, the city Truth or Consequences and Elephant Butte was the second city in America with the highest crime rate. There was a ton of rapes, murders, assaults. Sadly, it was a lot of sex workers and drug addicts who would end up being a victim to these crimes. It was just really sad, all the like the interviews and stuff I was watching about this case. The cops were like, yeah, it's just a lot of drug addicts or sex workers. I mean, and you see that to this day. If it has to do with the drug users or the sex workers, there's no sense of urgency to like put an end to it all, you know? It's just, it's really sad. Anyway, so back to David, he's out here in this area. Truth or consequences. David, he had acquired some savings over the years. He just like saved all of his money. He had a new smoking hot girlfriend by his side. Her name was Cindy. He met her at his work where he worked um, at the Elephant Butte State Park and it's the largest state park in New Mexico. And he worked there as a mechanic. He met her while she was doing community service or something at the park and they just really hit it off and started dating. They lived together in a double wide mobile home and there was a lot of land, desert around, not many neighbors, things were pretty spread out. Everyone 
It was a pretty quiet community. Everyone kept to their own. So David, he decided that it was time to finally fulfill his lifelong dream now that he had all the finances for it. And most importantly, he had a woman by his side who supported his desires and was ready to help him build what would become the toy box. Side note, you know when you're watching a movie and it's got like the most random title and you're like, I wonder why they named it that. And then you're watching the movie and then they say the title in the movie and you're like, I get it now. We're having that moment. So between the two of them, they spent over $100,000 on an empty and soundproof trailer as well as the supplies within it. The trailer itself was put on his property in the backyard area and they stocked it with a crap ton of supplies, okay? What kind of supplies you ask? With saws, knives, needles, surgical tools, whips, chains, straps, a fur-lined coffin, tons of doctors, tools and supplies, electrocution clamps, ropes, and a plethora of sex toys that were intimidating to most. Now David had decorated the walls with very graphic pornographic images of women being tied up, gagged, strangled, and it was now their wallpaper. In a video I saw when they were like touring the toy box, it's just, he like ripped out the pages of of porn magazines and hung them all throughout this toy box. So like I mentioned, he was a mechanic and he would always build and make his own tools. David took on a new hobby of building and creating his own sex toys. Okay, look, if you have children around and stuff, they shouldn't be watching this. No children. He made dildos out of plastic tubes, you know, like PVC pipes that you get at like Home Depot and stuff, um, not sponsored. This plastic PVC pipe dildo, it was huge. At the base of the dildo were a bunch of nails sticking upwards. So it would rip and cut the skin. I'm talking about this dildos like this fat, right? First of all, who's that fitting in? Be nasty. Um, and around the whole base of it were nails, long nails sticking up all the way around. And then there were more nails at the base of the wiener, like facing outwards, okay? So this toy, it was obviously not made for pleasure. It was made for pain. He made a couple of different penetration machines where the wiener would just like jab aggressively which is fine, again, like I've seen those before, but again, this one was made to create some kind of damage. It was not made for pleasure. There were ankle spreaders, but not just normal ones that are safe. Nay, nay. These ones would keep the legs open to the point where your hips would pop out of place or your muscles would tear. He somehow managed to get a gynecologist chair with the stirrups and shit. And he put that in the center of the room and all his toys around. We've got the pornography all over the walls. He's like, yes, this has been my dream. There was a homemade electrical generator that was used for torture. A mirror was mounted on the ceiling above the gynecologist's chair. So whoever was in the chair could watch. David also made like a wooden contraption that would bend his victims over and immobilize them while he could have dogs or friends come over and stick it in them. Yes, I know, disgusting. This part's really gross too. It was said that David would put gravy into the lower area of whoever was in this contraption and he would let 
dogs just go at it. With David, he didn't want consenting adults, okay? Nay, nay. He wanted to kidnap and create pain to his victims instead, and also involving animals, which is absolutely disgusting. So let's jump to March 22nd, 1999 in Elephant Butte. Now on this evening, David had posed as an undercover police officer, and he approached a sex worker. Her name was Cynthia. He approached her in a parking lot. She offered him, think a, like a blowjob or something, okay? And he told her that she was under arrest for solicitation of sex work and then he handcuffed her. So he puts her um, in the car and they drive off and they get to David's, his home. Takes her into his trailer, his house, where she was then handcuffed and chained to a bed in the living room. He had on um, like a dog collar with a bunch of like spikes in it, completely locked on her. So she ended up being there for about three days. She was in captivity. And Cynthia was just like, I've got to get out of here. Okay, she had, she knew she had to get out or she was going to die. So then David, he goes to work and Cindy, David's girlfriend, is in the house and she's supposed to supervise, make sure Cynthia isn't do, getting out. Cindy gets a phone call, bring, bing, bing. She's like, hey, hey, bitch, what's up? And Cynthia is on the bed. She looks over and she sees that Cindy accidentally left the keys to um, the chains that were on her wrist. The keys were on the table next to the bed. So Cynthia's like, gotta get those keys. So Cindy's on the phone like, yeah, uh-huh, mm, mm. Walk, starts walking away and she walks into the other room. She's on the phone and Cynthia's like, dude, it's like now or never. So Cynthia somehow manages to like scoot her way over to the table and she's able to get the keys. So she's kind of struggling. She's kind of like, you know, when there's a lot of adrenaline running through your body, um, you're shaking, you're, you're not being very quiet. So Cindy's on the phone and she hears like some some jiggling and some struggling happening and she's like let me call you back click so she goes back to the room and she sees that Cynthia has gotten the keys and she's unlocking herself Cynthia's like her adrenaline's just pumping so then Cindy jumps on top of her is trying to fight her trying to like pretty much knock her out Cindy then grabs a lamp that was on the table and she Boom, she like knocks it over Cynthia's head. She's trying to knock her unconscious, but Cynthia managed to unlock her chains, free her hands. So then for some reason, there's an ice pick that was nearby and Cynthia grabs the ice pick and she stabs Cindy with it. I've read different reports where it was like, she stabbed Cindy in like the head above her ear, but then I read somewhere else that she stabbed her in the neck. So she stabbed her somewhere like over here, okay? Stabs the bitch. When Cindy falls onto the floor, Cynthia just flies out the front door. She's butt naked. She has on the doll collar on her neck and she's just making a run for it. So she goes down to the main road and she's yelling, like trying to flag down cars and she's like, please help me. Like, and sadly, like the people driving, they didn't want any, they just didn't want to get involved. Okay, they're just driving and they're like, mm-hmm, no. But Cynthia just keeps running. She keeps running to different homes, knocking on the door. People aren't answering. She gets to another home and some lady answers brings her in and they call the police. The police come out there to where Cynthia was. They take her to the hospital for her wounds and whatnot, for her injuries. And the police are questioning her, questioning her, asking like, what happened? What was going on? And Cynthia told the police everything she could. First, police felt like there wasn't much credibility to Cynthia's story. She was a sex worker. She was also a drug addict. And sadly, police seemed to dismiss 
a lot of what they claim. Um, Cynthia doesn't know that like the police aren't really taking her seriously, but she's just telling them her whole story. While in the, the hospital talking to police, Cynthia looks over and she sees a lady walk in and guess who it is? It's Cindy, the girl that she just stabbed in the neck. So Cynthia starts freaking out. She starts yelling like, that's her, that's the girlfriend, that's her. Then police question Cindy. They go down to the home and they end up like searching the home. So when police officers go into the home, they see like it's a complete mess. They see that there are chains around the bed, also a bucket where Cynthia had told police she was use, using this bucket as the, like her bathroom. So when police saw this, they knew Cynthia was lying. There were obvious signs of a struggle. There was a broken lamp on the floor, there were chains, there was the bucket of waste everything that Cynthia had told them. So Cindy and David were both taken into custody for questioning. So then police are like searching the home and then they go into the backyard and then that's when they see everything. They go into this trailer and they saw a variety of signs hanging in the toy box. So one was labeled Satan's Den and then another said the lure of Satanism. The final sign is what makes investigators see Satanism as David's motive in all of this. So right next to the, the sign that said Satan's Den was a tall tripod with a very pricey RCA camcorder pointing towards the large black gynecologist's chair. And then inside they find a business-like clipboard. It was hanging on the wall and it looked like a roll call list of victims he had kidnapped between 1993 and 1997. It had a ton of dates on this clipboard. For example, it said like February 7th, 1994, and then it, next to it, it would say 27. And then underneath that, April 16th, 1994, 33. And then the list goes on and on and on with tons of dates and numbers all the way to like 1997. Investigators believe it was a tally mark showing the number of assaults he had committed. So then there was a bulletin board which had photos of his victims in bondage. Some were gagged, hogtied, tied up and looking to be in pain. He had Polaroid pictures of them and they were all over, all over. Also on the bulletin board was like a big old note of some set guidelines David had set for himself or maybe for like others. And it said, quote, a woman will do or say anything to get loose. They will kick, they will scratch, offer money, bite, yell, beg, scream, run, offer sex, threaten, lie, wait for opportunity, standard excuses and sob stories, menstruating, pregnant, and then like it just lists a bunch of excuses the victims may give. Then it goes on to say, quote, don't let her get to you. If she's worth taking, she is worth keeping and she must be subjected to hypnosis before the woman can be safely released. Never trust a chained captive. End quote. So then investigators begin to review this tape that was in the camcorder. They see David is right beside a lady and she's tied up in this chair and she's naked and it's very obvious to them that the lady in the chair wasn't fully awake or aware. She seemed to be really out of it, in and out of consciousness. She did not look to be of someone who could give any type of consent as to what was happening in that moment. Then while they're watching this VHS tape, a voice recording kicks in. Um, you see David like hit the play button on his tape 
player thing, I guess. You see, David would play an audio tape for his victims before he would assault and torture them. This douchebag, he called it a hypnosis track. The introductory tape explained that David was playing a torture game. It was David's voice explaining how he would torture them and what they were going to endure. So I guess every time he would bring a new victim in, he would tie them up to this, this chair and then he would play the tape. It reminds me of Saw, the movie, you know? So also David, he described his acts to be not only for himself, but also for the congregation of the Church of Satan. You can hear the full audio recording on YouTube. If you are curious, I am not going to play it here. For one, it's extremely inappropriate and absolutely disgusting and disturbing. Two, 40 minutes long, okay? The dude rambles forever, it's the worst. He's not very good at hypnosis. I mean, I'll give you a little idea. He starts off the recording by saying, hello there, bitch. Are you comfortable right now? Doubt it. He then goes on to explain like how he's going to stick things in all of the holes, that the body has a lot of holes and I will stick all of them. Throughout the whole recording, he just rambles a lot of like sexual nonsense. He needs like a coloring book or something. I don't know. Then finally you think it's over and it's like, um, Nope. So there's a side B to this hypnosis track. It continues, it goes on forever. And I didn't feel like no hypnosis after listening to it, okay? Anyways, it just further proves that he is a pathetic piece of human garbage. Police are looking at the footage and they're trying to figure out who is this lady in the chair on this recording. They're trying to figure out, does, do you recognize her? Can anybody recognize this lady? Like, do, where is she? We wanna speak to her. So they send this footage over to the FBI because they see that she has a large tattoo on her calf. They send it to the FBI so they can somehow determine what this tattoo is and hopefully lead them to, to the victim. And how the FBI is able to make out what this tattoo is, is insane to me because the footage is so grainy, but they are somehow able to determine what this tattoo is. Now it's a super unique tattoo. It's like squiggly lines or something. It's it's not like something simple like a heart or whatever. It's a very unique tattoo. They are somehow able to determine what it is. And then the FBI, they post it. I'm not sure how they get it out there, but they get it out there to the public somehow. And they're saying like, hey, if this is your tattoo, can you please Please come forward. We really need to speak with you. I'm gonna be completely honest. I'm not fully sure how they put it out there because it got to this woman named Kelly. Kelly was living in Colorado at the time and she's like, hey, that's my tattoo. Kelly goes to the police department in Truth or Consequences and then they tell her that they have this videotape. So let me tell you now Kelly's story, okay? So new story, Kelly later testifies July 24th, 1996. She and her husband got into an argument. And at this time she was living in Elephant Butte. So they get into an argument, she leaves the house and she decided to go out with her girlfriends and go play pool and have a couple of adult beverages. They end up at Blue Water Saloon. It's a local bar where a lot of people in the neighborhood go. They decide just to hang out there and play pool. Now, while inside this bar, Kelly runs into an old friend. Her name's Jessie. Pop quiz. Do you remember what David's daughter's name was? Well, her name's Jessie. Jessie is David's daughter. 
Okay, she's hanging out at this bar too. So Kelly was saying that she had known Jesse for a couple of years. So when Kelly's friends decided to go home for the night, Kelly felt comfortable hanging out with Jesse. Towards the end of the night, Kelly said she was feeling really dizzy, ill, she was feeling sick, and she only had one beer and she needed a ride home. So she asked her friend Jesse, Hey, can you give me can you give me a ride home? And Jesse's like, sure. Kelly says from that point she does not remember a damn thing, okay, nothing. But it is later reported what exactly happened and it's this. So Jessie, David's daughter, she drugged the beer that Kelly was drinking. And instead of driving her home, she drove Kelly to David's trailer. Once she got there, a dog collar was attached to Kelly and she was locked up in the toy box. Kelly awoke and she blacked out several times during the two days of torture and drugging. She was being consistently drugged. So he thinks she's dead and then he takes her like the side of the road or something and he drops her off, Kelly. And then another man finds her. I know this is confusing, but another man finds Kelly and he ends up actually taking her home, okay? At that time when she was dropped off by the stranger, Kelly's husband believed she was actually cheating on him or had been on a drug binge and he didn't believe her story at all. She kept saying to her husband that she didn't remember what happened. She she was gone for two days and she just didn't remember and he did not believe her. He ended up filing for divorce from Kelly and then Kelly moved to Colorado. And this was all within like a week time frame. It was very quick. Kelly said in an interview that she kept having nightmares and these nightmares were like of her being held down or restrained and being like raped or things being inserted in her. And she just thought it was due to like stress. So when she went to go talk to police because of her tattoo, they questioned her asking if she remembered anything about being at this house, if she knew who the guy was. And then police investigators brought up the VHS tape. She said, she had, didn't know what they were talking about, right? She had no idea. Ugh, I couldn't even imagine being in her shoes because police end up like showing her the tape. It eventually led to her remembering everything and like putting all the pieces together, which like made me so sick to my stomach could, because could you imagine not remembering anything, right? And then they show you this tape of you and you're being tortured and it's just couldn't imagine being in, in her shoes. Like it w must be, ugh. So the media had gotten a hold of this story and they were kind of putting putting it out there about what was going on, right? And once the media put it out there, then another victim had come forward and her name was Angelica. And she came forward right after the abuse originally had taken place and she had reported it to police. Originally her abuse had taken place like right before Cynthia, the girl we first talked about. And because again, Angelica was a sex worker and a drug abuser, nothing came from it. Nothing happened about it. She told like where the house was and everything. Once the media had gotten a hold of it, Angelica went again to the police officers and told them like, hey, the same thing happened to me and I had reported it and I just wanna make sure, she just did a follow-up, took notice of her claims and eventually the investigators um, took her claims seriously. Investigators talk with David's live-in girlfriend, Cindy, remember her? Friends describe Cindy as someone who listened to Christian radio, loved romance novels, and loved her small dog. Cindy said she had participated in multiple assaults and she was willing to give any information on David in order to get a lesser sentence right out the gate. She was like, I'll tell you anything you want. 
Cindy told investigators that David knew he had been tipped off. He had been tipped off to the FBI because the FBI had come by and they questioned him on his slavery ring. He reassured Cindy that he talked his way out of it and not to worry about it. She does confirm that David was selling women to other sex traffickers. She also said that David viewed women in a sense that he owned them. And when talking about killing his victims, he called them packages. Cindy went on to say that David was crafty little bitch. David was constantly making his own torture devices and restraints from junk he would find either at work or being like thrown out. She claimed that David took photos of his victims during torture, but would burn the photos after a period of time passed, which disappointed investigators since this could have been essential evidence used to identify possible victims. So based off of her accounts given, she said that he killed over 30 people. She explained that David tried to dump a body into the lake, but it had come back up. So then he learned to cut open the stomachs so they would submerge easily into the lake and like stay down. And then over time, he would cut open their stomachs and then fill his, their stomachs with rocks. And then he would tie them back up with with like chicken wire and then throw them into the lake so then they would stay down as well. So Cindy would go on to say that David had dropped about seven bodies into the lake. So you would think investigators would then go search the lake, right? Like, okay, she's saying that there's seven bodies in the lake. Let's go, let's go check. No. <laughs> So investigators said that like the water was too deep or too dark. They also thought about possibly draining the lake completely, but it was too costly and it just never happened. So they did nothing instead. So Cindy was being charged with conspiracy to commit kidnapping, accessory to kidnapping, accessory to criminal penetration. She was sentenced to 36 years in prison and only had to serve half of her sentence, which was 19 years. And then she was up for release back in like 2017, I think it was, but I could not find, where is she now? I could not find anything after after that. I don't know if she got out. I don't know if she's still in there. I wasn't having much luck finding anything about her. Okay, so now Glenda Jean Ray, AKA Jessie, AKA David's daughter, remember her? So she was known in the area to be like a drug dealer and she was pretty violent as well. She lived with her mother, which was one of David's ex-wives and had a pretty rocky relationship with her father. Jessie would say that she never knew what was happening to the women that were brought to the toy box. She just assumed that they were being raped, but didn't participate in the killing or the rape. Later on said that she was the one that called the FBI and she gave an anonymous tip saying that her father, David, was capturing women, sold them in a slavery ring. David would be later on like questioned about this anonymous tip that she had given, but nothing came from it. Remember Kelly? Kelly was the one on the videotape. So when Kelly's accusation of Jesse being the one that drugged her, that's what led to Jesse's arrest, which was a April 26, 1999. Jesse, she ended up being charged with kidnapping, criminal sexual penetration, criminal sexual contact, and conspiracy. She was released after only serving two and a half year sentence. And then she was put on probation for one year. Jesse didn't really talk much, so I have no idea. Like, we don't know if she was involved more. She probably was, but she's out now. And if she's watching this, sorry girl, like, don't come after me. I didn't do anything. I'm just reporting the story. Okay, so I know this like this is a lot of people and names and there's a lot going on. I believe that there were a lot more people involved, but there seemed to be like a big cover up happening, okay? The 1993 audio, the hypnosis thing, 
it proposed he was not acting alone in the abductions, that there were many, many people helping him out. And it's hard to find info on it. And I don't want to put out like some wild accusations, but it seems like something super suspicious was going on. On. There are tons of theories, people in the community being involved, police officers being involved, kind of seems like a lot of people knew. Anyways, so back to David. So what the hell happened to David then? Well, first of all, since day one of his arrest, he denied, denied, denied. David stated that they were all prostitutes, okay? He was paying them, it was consensual. There was absolutely no raping and killing happening and they had no proof that there was raping and killing happening because it was was all consensual. He showed absolutely no remorse and he stated that he was the victim here, that these people were making crazy accusations and how dare they make these accusations. So the courts can only really charge him with three cases, although the FBI suspected at least 40 more unknown victims based off of David's journal, which documented the date of the alleged abductions. He also tracked in this journal every victim and procedures performed on them, all in David's handwriting. Despite not having any bodies to use as evidence against David in the trial, the FBI felt they had a very strong case. Also, the ability of David to purchase, design, install, and use such devices on people is proof of both premeditation and lack of insanity. So then in 2001, the courts decided to put him through three separate trials, one for each of the, the living victims. So remember Cynthia, Angelica, and Kelly. Sadly, the trial for An Angelica, it never was brought forward because she had passed from a, a drug overdose, sadly. David eventually agreed to a plea deal and received 224 year prison sentence in exchange for his daughter, Jessie, to receive a reduced sentence. I mean, she only served two and a half years, so it was quite reduced. Even though he was only tried for three murders, investigators believe that he r raped, tortured, and killed over 60 women over the course of his life. They've never been able to locate any of their remains. Most of the evidence of the high body count comes from the diary David had kept that detailed what he did to each victim, but it doesn't say where he buried their bodies. After his arrest, David agreed to show authorities where he had buried his victims on May 28th, 2002. Conveniently, okay, David Parker Ray, the toy box killer, suffered a massive heart attack and he died at the age of 62. Yeah. If it were not for Cynthia escaping and uncovering what was going on, who knows how long it would have been until anybody would have discovered like what he was doing in there. So some who have followed the case for a long ass time, okay, they suspect unknown victims of David may lie unacknowledged under the New Mexico sands, the reservoir and the waterways. There's a lot of land out there, a lot of dirt, a lot of nothing. So people could really be anywhere. Also, they could just be in the damn lake that nobody wanted to search. David was responsible for the deaths of anywhere between 14 to 60 people. He claims to have killed at least one person per year since like the age of 14. 
we will never know for sure. David being now dead, no bodies were found, no possible victims were identified and no old suspicious deaths related to David were ever officially linked to him. November of 2002, the toy box was open to the public with the hope that it would lead to more surviving victims coming forward. It kind of more turned into like a tourist attraction, <laughs> kind of a dumb idea, but what do I know? You know, shut up Bailey. So in October of 2011, the FBI performed a search of the McRae Canyon, which is near Elephant Butte Lake, looking for potential victims, but they found none. If only they would just look in that damn lake. That's the story of the toy box killer. It's a weird one because there's no proof technically that he killed people. It's all like based off of David's diary, his little notebook that they found inside of the toy box, but there was no bodies found. So they don't know, like maybe he's just lying or something. We don't really know. It's super gross. He was a very, very sick man. I apologize. I know this one was a little like heavy. I mean, they all kind of are. Oh my gosh, you guys, really quick. When I was watching documentaries and stuff about this guy, the comment sections were terrifying. There were so many people who were saying like, David Ray Parker is my hero. I love him. David, I love David Ray Parker. Get better idols. There are so many good people to follow out there in the world. Stop idolizing disgusting human beings. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. Anyways, yeah, it made me very worried and disgusted and thinking like how many people are out there thinking about doing this or doing this. Anyways, I hope that you guys have a very good day today. Please make good choices. Please be safe out there and I'll be seeing you guys very soon. Bye.